Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Jeanette Walls is the author of Hang the Moon, a novel. Jeanette graduated from Barnard College and was a journalist in New York. Her memoir, The Glass Castle, has been a New York Times bestseller for more than eight years. She is also the author of the instant New York Times bestsellers, The Silver Star and Half Broke Horses, which was named one of the 10 best books of 2009 by the editors of the New York Times Book Review. She lives in rural Virginia with her husband, the writer John Taylor, and you will see just how much of a fan I am by our conversation. This was such a joy, and I am so grateful to Jeanette for coming on my show. Welcome, Jeanette. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to Discuss Hang in the Moon. Congratulations. Thank you so much. 
Okay, a new novel out. How do you first of all, how do you feel about it? How are you how do you feel with it entering the world and all of that? You know, it's so funny because I spent so long with Sally Kincaid. And she's a kind of complicated woman, but I grew to really love her. And I feel like I'm taking my baby and showing her to the world and hoping other people get her too. And so far, people have been really smart about it. So it's very exciting. But, you know, I never thought I'd write fiction. I I, I see myself as a truth teller. And I, it was a kind of a, a long and slow journey to, you know, Hang the Moon is my first fully fictional book. That being said, um, it's a lot of it is based on historical figures. I, I, my long-suffering editor had to pry my bony fingers off facts because I kept on like, well, kept on going to the truth and to history because I, I, I wanted it to be credible. Authenticity is very important to me. So I did a lot of research for this and I spent probably much longer on this book than I should have. Like what does longer mean? Seven or eight years. Okay. Yeah. I mean, is there a should for how long a novel should take? I don't know. <laughs> that's that's an excellent question. I just, I got so immersed in the research. I just, I love, I love history. I love finding things out. And, you know, I think we have to understand our history to understand where we are now. And so this book is set in the 1920s. And I always thought that was kind of a fun jazz era. And people are all reading Gatsby and, you know, doing the Charleston <laughs> but not in the hills of Virginia, not in rural Virginia where the life was really, really hard. So it was kind of difficult to research this. And um, the moonshiners who I wrote about were not keeping diaries. Right. So it, the, the research was kind of tough. I um, mean, I ended up reading a lot of uh, newspapers from the period and catalogs and trial transcripts to try to get the language right. It was just very important to me that they felt, that the characters felt like real people from that period sometimes and I'm not knocking anybody else's way of writing but sometimes in historical novels I feel that the that the characters sound and feel contemporary mm. and I didn't want that but I also didn't want them to feel archaic and like you know I didn't want them to feel quaint and otherly so it was this this kind of trick of of trying to make them relatable but old-fashioned interesting and what drew you to this time period well, there were a couple of things. First of all, I'd long been fascinated by prohibition. My father was a raging alcoholic, and I learned about prohibition when I was around seven or eight years old because there was a, a whiskey bottle on the table that mom had repurposed as a vase, and it said it was illegal to refill it. And I was like, Mom, we got to throw this away. We're going to get arrested. She goes, oh, that's a dumb law. Just ignore it. And I was like, that's when my family operated. But she told me about this magical time called prohibition. And because my father was such an alcoholic, I wanted to live during this time. And she said, oh, it was a disaster. Every It was a big backfire. So I became fascinated, fascinated for that reason. But beyond that, you know, it, it was a time when America was really trying to figure out who it was. It was post-World War I, and it was moving from being an agrarian society to being a, a somewhat um, urban society. And, you know... The technology was revolutionary, especially the car. I think it's kind of hard for us today to imagine what, what it was like to have car and electricity, you know, for the first time. So at the same time that the nation is trying to figure out who and what it is, where it's going, Sally is coming of age, our main character. So I wanted I wanted the that to be the backdrop for this young woman who's trying to figure out who the heck am I? You know, what does it mean? to be an American? What does it mean to be a woman 
And what does it mean to be a Kincaid, the most powerful family in the county? And what does power mean? And how do you use that power? So that that was the thing, thing that I wanted this character to be grappling with at the same time that the nation was doing it. So not unlike now, in a way. <laughs> so <laughs> like, many <what>? parallels. <laughs> yes, I thought, oh my gosh. You know, and I thought that being immersed in this research would make me nostalgic for the 20s and it actually had the opposite effect because I'd be reading these newspapers about race riots and it was funny just the casual racism and the gleeful misogyny in the newspapers you know jokes about women drivers and jokes about African-Americans ha 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 and I was like wow this is so friggin ugly and I'm not saying we're as far as we should be but we have come a long way. But there are these parallels about, you know, not just uh, about grappling with new technology and the power of it. And it's it's beautiful and wonderful if you use it correctly. But even more than that, I think that because it was such a time of profound change, it was scary to many people. We're losing the way the world used to be. The world used to be safe and beautiful and simpler. And we're moving into this modern time and it's scary. And prohibition was largely a movement to go back to the past, the way things used to be before these crazy Italians came with their wine and the Irish came with their beer. Let's go back to this this better time. And the prohibitionists were well-intending people for the most part. Some of them were a little nutty, but but some of them actually believed that if they outlawed liquor, they could close the saloons, the dads would go home to their families, we could eliminate law, and we could I mean, we could eliminate crime, and all of that money that had been used for law enforcement could be used to educate people. So it was this utopian ideal that completely and utterly backfired and created a crime wave unlike anything this country had ever seen. The price of liquor went up, the quality of liquor went down. And in the mountains in Virginia, where I'm talking about, this had been the only cash crop for years. So it turned somewhat law-abiding people into outlaws who were being shot at. And it was just, it was a very tumultuous and scary time. And then, of course, we have just the everyday of loss and sibling relationships and step parents and like yes. blended families. And what, do yes. you, how do you make sense of your environments where things in your own home, which was exactly. her home for a while, keep changing all the time? Exactly. As much as there's all of this stuff about shootouts and rum running and all this craziness, Hang the Moon is essentially a book about family mm-hmm. and our role in family. And how we're stereotyped often to do X, Y, Z. We stereotype ourselves as how do you break free from family while staying true to your roots? You know, um, Hang the Moon, in, in, some booksellers told me they're going to be promoting it as a Mother's Day book. And I thought, like, that's the craziest <laughs> thing in the world because it's about the opposite of motherhood. But then I realized that's why that's such a brilliant idea. Because Sally, she over-identifies with her father. She doesn't really have a mother role figure. Her mother, her her biological mother died when she was three. Um, She doesn't get along with her stepmother. She's raised by her mother's uh, sister, her that aunt, who she she loves, but she doesn't particularly admire. Her other aunt, she kind of admires, but doesn't love. She wants to be like her dad. Mm -hmm. And she keeps on being told, no, you can't be. You've got to you've got to become a mom and raise a family. And and in this life and in this world, that wasn't an appealing 
option. And, you know, and in some ways, I mean, we have so many more options now, but it's still, it's a, it's a difficult choice, you know, how do you, how do you become, how do you be a mom and a woman and, and a career woman? And it's just something that is at the core of what Sally's really grappling with, because it was with her, it was more either or choice. Do you want to, be, because you could, the, a woman could become a career woman. There were a few, but you really couldn't be a mom too. So she had to choose between these two worlds and she loved and idealized her father. And much of it is, uh, the, the book is a journey coming to terms with who her father really was and who her mother really was. I feel like that's some of the work you've been doing for your own life <laughs> through memoir. Through- <laughs> Very well said. <laughs> I, you know, um, I am not Sally Kincaid, obviously, but I think we all mine from our personal experiences about, you know, I mean, I remember being uh, 13 years old and my mother was 38 years old and looking at it thinking, I don't know about this motherhood thing. This looks really hard. <laughs> um, I didn't want to become my daddy, but it certainly seemed he had more options. But yeah, the the roles that were all assigned, and not just the women, the, the guys as well. Sally's brother, half-brother Eddie, he's a lovely young man, and he's very sensitive, and he doesn't want to become the head of the company, the head of the family business. And, you know, men get stereotyped just as easily as women do. So this is really about how do you fulfill your destiny? What what does family mean? Do we choose our families or are we born into them? And, and to what degree do we have any control over that? So what does it mean for you as a grown-up, right? When you have thought so much about your own family of origin, written about your family of origin, Mm -hmm. explored family so much in fiction, and then you have to make your own choices going forward. Like, how do you, how do you synthesize all of that and move forward? I, it's something I still grapple with, you know, I mean, it's something I think about all the time, the legacy that my very complicated family gave me. And I think that in my ripe old age, I really, (laughs) I've really been able to sort of pluck the good out of the bad. I mean, certainly, you know, I, I, I think that they gave me an incredibly mixed bag in terms of my heritage, but there were so many beautiful gifts in it. Um, you know, I, I come kind of late to pure fiction. I always thought I would, I would never write fiction. I, I, I was a journalist. I was a truth teller and I would go around telling people that I will never write fiction. I can't make things up. I am I'm incapable of making things. I have no imagination. And that was almost a mantra that I had. And I was at a book reading one time and a gentleman in the front row kind of raised his hand and very gently told me, ma'am, um, I think you've got a great imagination, but you're afraid of creativity. Oh. oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was just one of those moments. And I realized that, you know, my parents were both super creative, super imaginative, to the point that it was a little scary, to the point that my father had all these characters in his head who would trot out, sometimes at his behalf, sometimes without his control, you know. <laughs> and my mother had a relationship of convenience with the truth. So I, I, I read headfirst into the truth. I, I'll be a journalist. I'll find out the truth. But any biographer or journalist knows that we shape our truths by which stories we tell and how we choose to tell them. And that certainly came 
uh, clear to me while I was writing The Glass Castle because you can take the exact same incident. My very favorite memory from my entire childhood, my father giving us stars. And to me, it's a beautiful, precious memory. To my older sister, Lori, who's much smarter than me, it was my dad's El Chipo way of getting out of having to actually buy us things. And we're both, we're both right. Um, and so how do you tell your truths? But, uh, you know, so I, I slowly, so that was The Glass Castle. And then the next book was about my mother. And I called it fiction because it was actually about her mother, but it was all told to me by my mother. And I have no idea how much of it was true. And I had to fill in little gaps. And then The Silver Star. And this was the first book that I, I really mostly made things up. That being said, a, a lot of it is based on historical figures and historical incidents. I wanted to make sure thing, that everything that happened was credible. Uh, the main character, Sally Kincaid, she ends up being a rum runner and heading up the caravans of rum running. And there, there was a woman who actually did this. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't write about something that could have never happened. Oh, because I, I think you lose readers. You lose me. I think the best kind of fiction is is rooted in reality. And then you take it and stir it up and do what you will with it. You had one random line, and I don't even know why this jumped out of me when I was rereading the book this morning, but about how at the time, you know, it, like wearing white gloves was such a signal. <laughs> Like yeah, it just, yeah, it it yeah. was, it said so much about yeah. who you were, where your place was in society. It it signaled to your peers, to everybody else. And then I, as I read it, I was like, what is the signal? Like, is there a signal? Is there like, is it like, where does that take us today? I don't know. I was just like, how, how interesting. It was just so clearly delineated back then. Yeah, with just the, uh, Yeah. These status symbols. And it wasn't just white gloves to show that you didn't get your hands dirty. Um, literally and figuratively, but it was also white dresses. If you look at those fabulous pictures of, of the Victorian and, and Edwardian women in their white dresses, and they look so perfect. And you have to think about all that work it kept to keep those, things were filthy back then, and to keep dresses white, it was a lot of hard work. And um, so most of these status symbols, it always comes back to money, like what, what you can afford. So after the white dresses, then it, you know, Dyes became popular, but they were kind of expensive. But, but bright colors became the status symbol, and and now it's stuff like the the bags, the twenty thousand dollar handbags. I mean, you know these these things people carry around to show, I got money, honey. You know, and, and the little <laughs> signals that they send to each other. The, the truly wealthy, I have heard, try to hide the fact that they're as wealthy as they are. But um, they, they know they have these little rich person signals, but. That's, I believe, one of the things I'm that made me less nostalgic for the 1920s is I think it's less important. It is certainly still somewhat important, but I think that society was so stratified back then. It was breaking out of that because it was becoming a middle class and there was becoming this women were, were able to have free time. And what they did with that free time was very uh, significant and, and all of these women's societies for beautification and better sidewalks and who who belonged to which society, you know, and, and my editor said, but you know, Jeanette, you're, this is a book about in the mountains. People didn't have these societies. Yeah, they did. In these small towns, it was just very important, especially, you know, the valley people versus the hill people. There was a real divide there. So I think all communities have these little signals to to let each other know who's on top and who's on bottom. And you know, the the struggle, the fluidity with which you can come up and down. 
Personally, it's very important to me. You know, when I've toured uh, overseas on behalf of the Glass Castle, some people say, your story could only happen in America, you know. And, you know, for all our problems, I do love that, that there is some fluidity that you can, you know, with my white trash beginnings that I can, you know, that I've been able to to do what I've done is is extraordinary. But, you know, I lived on Park Avenue for a while. I, I rubbed elbows with those people. But I always felt a little bit like, more like I I. I, I had a green card there. I, you know, I've, I always come back to writing about my people, you know, that I, that this is who I know that these are, you know, when I wrote the glass castle, I originally included a lot more about my first husband's world. And I was an outsider looking in. And I just think, you know, tell your story. Half truths are, they can become characters and there can be some truth in it, but they're meant to ridicule. And I believe in, getting as deep as you can to get empathy to get to, to if you tell the whole story i believe empathy almost inevitably follows explain why these people are who they are and you know one of the one of the things that really really helped me was writing hang the moon was was hanging on the out on the set of the glass castle and watching these actors become people they had never met and understanding them so deeply and so profoundly that sometimes when the director would tell them to do or say something and say, you know, I don't think my character would do that. And it just, it took my breath away that these people knew and cared about these characters who happened to be my family so profoundly that they understood how they would think and act. Did they get it right? They did. <laughs> they did. I think that fiction writing, if it's done right, is an act of empathy. Mm -hmm. And there was one point at which a couple of the characters, but particularly Woody Harrelson, particularly, he was just, he took my breath away. He, he went off script and said things that my father had said that I hadn't told Woody. Oh my gosh. He, I mean, I, the first time I saw him in full makeup, I was shaking and crying. He, he nailed it, you know, and he did it with such compassion. And that's what just... It just floored me that these actors, they weren't interested in passing judgment. They were interested in understanding. Why did your parents do this? Why did your sister do this? What was what was going on? And the physicality and of emotion, they just, they, they got it. And Woody and Naomi Watts would stay in character when they were on screen. And we went out to dinner one night and they started fighting. And, uh, oh, this is just too weird. No <laughs> way. they got it. They got it, you know. And they, they understood that loving, bickering, fighting, blah, blah, blah. And the degree to which I could channel that, I tried to, this, this just understanding these people without, you know, the characters in Hang the Moon are, some of them are, I don't want to say not sympathetic, but they don't always do good things. But I wanted the readers to be able to understand why. We all are a mixture of, of dark and light. And we have the reasons for, for doing what we do. And I just, if if I could get that across with these characters who lived 100 years ago, that, that was my hope. Because I just wanted people to, to get what was going on in their heads. Totally. Well, that absolutely came across. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you. It means a lot to me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything, it might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. I don't know. I just felt like all these bad things just kept happening to Sally and all these people she loved. And I don't know. I I, I felt particular compassion towards Aunt Faye and just like, oh, especially when they were about to take her to the feeble-minded place. And I don't know. I just, this poor woman. I But that was the story for so many women back I, then. I know. It's just, you know? it's still horrible it's, to read. I mean, it was, it was, yeah. It, you know, and it was, it was a difficult time for women. You know, as like I said, despite all the flappers and all that, especially in rural settings, and and finding a man was the career choice. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that unless you choose badly. <laughs> you know, if you you know, and you hook yourself up with a bad man, and that's what Sally kept on seeing is these examples of women who thought that getting married was going to save them, and it didn't, or finding that the who thought that finding a man was going to be the solution to their problems and actually was the creation of their problems. Oh my gosh. You've had so much success with your book and your movie and now you have this fabulous novel. You're well known. Like how does how does the the day-to-day how does this play out in the day-to-day life? Like when you wake up and you like make coffee or whatever you're doing in the morning. Like what does your day-to-day look like and how much does all of this creep into every moment of your life? Do you know what I mean? I think I'm the luckiest human being on the planet, first of all. I just I can't believe this. And it's so ironic to me because I just, for so long, I thought that my past, my past was a source of shame for me. And I'm just, I'm very big on take these things that you don't love about yourself, flip it over, and there's a blessing on the other side. So 
I, I love that. But when I'm writing, I'm just, I'm kind of obsessive. I'm, I'm a fast but sloppy writer. And I just, I just write and rewrite. I mean, I, I'll come clean with you 17 drafts on this thing. 17 drafts. The first, first draft, it was awful. The first draft was just terrible. But I, I believe in just getting it down. What's wrong with this? Fix it. What's wrong with it? Still fix it. But my life is very simple and very humble. I, I have a nice house now. I, I have a really, I have four bathrooms with flush toilets in each one of them. So life is good. You got a flush toilet. You got nothing to complain about. But I live on a farm and I have critters and I have a beautiful life and I live in a small-ish town. And I kind of love that. I loved New York City. I was, I was head over heels in love with New York. But now when I go back, it feels like an old boyfriend. I, I will always love it, but just sort of like moved on. <laughs> um, but I feed my critters and um, and work on my book. And, you know, I I just I love the small town life. I just feel there's so much material there. You know, the the arguments The there is a lot of hierarchy, but then there's also a lot of mingling. And it's just it's very interesting to me to see how that works. And are you working on something new now? I am not. I am not. I, one of the things that I realized, I'm so sorry about all the suffering during the pandemic, but one of the things that I realized about myself is that I'm not good at multitasking, something that moms are very, very good at, but I'm not. not. And I realized I, I just, I, I, I couldn't be working on a book and and do this right now. I just, I, I'm kind of obsessive and need to do things 110% or I can't do that at all. And do you have trouble, like, do you still find yourself going back into some of the historical stuff of the book? Are you like still reading lots of books on it and all of that? I think about it all the time. I think about the period. I think about what happened next, what happened before, how we got there. I mean, one of the reasons that I love looking into histories is because it's almost like therapy for, for the nation. You know, it's like you don't understand where we are now until you understand where we used to be and how we got here. And the progression, once you read it, it's like, oh, that, that makes so much sense. And I've, I've heard it said, and I, I love this, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm. And these themes keep on coming up. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to set this 100 years ago, is I think that these issues of family and stereotyping yourself and role models, they, they're somewhat timeless. You know, it's it's something we grappled with 100 years ago, something we grapple with today. It's something we'll grapple with 100 years from now. So having read The Glass Castle, of course, and seen the movie and all of that, and like so many people might feel like, you know, we really know you. But a memoir, of course, is just your choice of what you put in it and your interpretation of it. So what do we not know about you? Like what what if we if that's all we take away, like what are we what are we really missing or what what maybe we're getting wrong or what's the real you versus the <laughs> you in the memoir? You said I could ask you anything. So. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm just trying to think of a, a, the, the right answer to that because I, I've been to a lot of classrooms where people are, will tell me I, I, I love speaking to students. The fact that the glass castle is read in classes, it's, it's beyond a dream come true. But people say, you're just like I thought you would be. So I don't know if there's anything more. I don't, I don't, I believe in transparency. I really do. And um, I just, I think people see you differently than you see yourself. Sometimes I'm like, I'm, I'm not trying to be at all cagey or, or, or hiding anything. I just, I, I think I kind of, I, I am what you see. I'm not really, I'm not, 
very, I'm not a good poker player. <laughs> I don't, I don't hide anything very well. So, you know, I am what I am. Amazing. And is Hang the Moon going to be a movie? It has been optioned for a TV series, for a streaming TV series. They, they told me too many characters and too much plot for a, a traditional movie. So they're, they're looking at doing something a little bit longer, which would just make me so happy. Somebody who read it told me it's like the Dirty Waldens. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. <laughs> so, they, you know, a family involved in crime would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Who do you think Sally misses the most? Her mom. I mean, growing up without a a loving mother, without a loving parent, but especially, you know, the Sally's journey is really looking for a a role model, a mother role model. That's really what it's about. People say that Sally's fearless and she's not fearless. She's terrified. She's terrified that her father will disapprove of her, that she's terrified she's not worthy of being a Kincaid. She's terrified she'll never find her place in the world. And it's only when she, I don't want to do any kind of spoilers, but it's only when she stops trying to be her father that she can kind of come to terms with who she really is. And, you know, she she has kind of a little bit of a hole in her heart that will never be completely filled up because she never felt that mother's love when she was growing up. Okay. Just last, last question. You rewrote this 17 times. I yeah. read on, you, you said many times that rewriting is like the key to, to everything. Like how do you get for you? How do you get over the fear of like getting back into a manuscript and trying again? Like, how do you, how do you, over, how do you like yeah. you gear yourself up to just go back and, and try and try and try again and, and keep making things better? I, I don't know if it's, Fear. I'm kind of obsessive. It's it's sort of like picking at a scab or something like that. I can't help myself. And I think about it all, first thing in the morning, last thing at night. And you just you keep on tackling it. The the thing that I have the fear of is that I'm going to lose perspective. That I I don't know whether it's in. I mean you you, you read something. Like, Does this work? Does this make sense? Does this feel right? I um I read things out loud to see if it works to see if it 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 sounds right to my ear. But that's why we have editors. <laughs> That's why we have readers out there who say, you know, Demantis doesn't work. And I I don't mind being told that. In fact, I kind of like it because I, I you can lose perspective. You can fall in love with your own prose or your own clever little line or your wacky plot twist. And I just, I love to be told, no, go back and work on it. Make it better. Because it, it, somebody's going to tell you somewhere that doesn't work. And I'd rather be told before it's out there. So that's that's the fear is that it's out there. And and But I have a fabulous editor. And my husband is so wonderful about being a reader. He's just, he's, you know, I I, I am a research nerd. And I, I, I dug up all this great information about the history of flypaper and the history of oranges. And I did great big, long, fat chapters about all this stuff and luckily he's more easily bored than I am <laughs> he's like Jeanette this is really boring take it out <laughs> so, so you've got to have those other readers you've got to have the editor you've got to have somebody who will tell you this doesn't work and and John my husband has a, had a really good line he said writing is so tricky because you have to simultaneously 
believe in yourself and question yourself. Mm. And it's, it's a real balancing act. And, you know, the same is true in life. But I think especially with any creative endeavor, you have to, you know, you have to believe in this thing that in the early stages was God awful. It was so bad. <laughs> it was, it was, and because there's so many interesting things out there, I was trying to cram them all in and do the history, you know, of, of prohibition in America. No, 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 no. People don't need that. If they want to, if they want to read a book about the history of prohibition in America, they can read, you can't smoosh that in. So I, I just had to keep on cutting stuff and cutting stuff because, like I said, I, I find everything in the world fascinating. And so just stick with the story. And if you kind of fall, you kind of fall in love with, the struggles of this woman, which makes me feel a little bit like I've turned into a crazy person like my dad, but she became kind of this person who I cared about, Sally. I wanted to get her story and pull it out of these, all of these various other stories that we're trying to intrude and just tell people about this woman who was struggling so hard to figure out who and what she was and to get that story out there and let people hear it and to meet and know and maybe even like Sally. And lucky for us, he used all that creativity. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, thank you so much, Jeanette. Thanks for coming on and for talking and for sharing and being so inspiring and just such, just so amazing. This has been such a joy. So thank you. The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for having me on your fabulous show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.